On a cold Sunday evening in 1959, a group of nine experienced hikers died under such bizarre circumstances that now, 60 years after the events of that ill-fated night, many experts are still perplexed about what exactly transpired. The group was from a college near Russia's Ural Mountains, a remote mountain range known for towering evergreens, dense forest, and, in the winter, heavy snowfall and freezing temperatures. But the group knew what they were doing when it came to conditions, and they came prepared. They each held elite certifications for their ability to hike in extreme conditions, and upon completion of this trip, they were promised to each receive a certification only held by the Soviet Union's most experienced athletes. Their goal was to hike from a small village to a mountain seven miles away. But in order to get there, they need to hike through what's come to be known as Dyatlov Pass at the foot of a slope that the local indigenous people of the region referred to as the Mountain of the Dead. The one member of the group, which started as a 10-person expedition, turned back shortly after their departure because of a combination of illness and a knee injury. The trip started pretty smoothly. A roll of film later recovered from one of their cameras showed them smiling and laughing early into the trip. But as night fell, the group set up camp on Dyatlov Pass and planned to finish their trip in the coming days, sending a telegram when they arrived at their final destination. However, that telegram would never arrive. After days went by and no one heard from the group, a search and rescue team was dispatched to find them. But what they found was chilling evidence that indicated that they never made it through the night in the shadow of the mountain of death. I'm Jesse Carey. I'm a writer, a journalist, and a podcaster. And this is Hiding Something. Chapter 5, A Razor That Cuts Both Ways When the rescue team eventually reached the group's camp at Dyatlov Pass, they stumbled upon a scene straight from a horror movie. In Russia, people still talk about what the rescuers found on the side of that mountain in the late 1950s. They were easily able to locate the tents, but oddly, the tents had been cut open from the inside, as if whoever was sleeping in them left in an extreme hurry. I mean, who cuts their way out of a tent? Their gear had also been abandoned in the tents. Thankfully, the snow preserved their footsteps, which showed that they had apparently run to a nearby tree line. But despite the heavy snow and the hikers' advanced skill levels, most of the group was only wearing socks, or some of them were just in bare feet. When they were eventually able to find the bodies of the group, the mystery became even stranger. Two of the bodies were found nearly a mile from the camp. They were frozen to death in their underwear underneath a large tree. Oddly, the branches high in the tree were broken, and there was evidence of a small campfire nearby. Three other bodies were found between the tree and the camp. One of them had a badly fractured skull. It took two months, but when spring temperatures eventually melted the snow, the four other bodies were found too, but the mystery of what happened to the group, it only grew. The four seemed to be wearing the clothes of their deceased friends. One of them too had a fractured skull. Two had crushed ribs so severe that an investigator said this, quote, it was equal to the effect of a car crash, end quote. One of them was missing their tongue. Another was missing their eyes. According to some reports, there were traces of radioactivity emanating from their clothes. Later, some of the victims had open casket funerals, and there were reports of visitors claiming that some of the bodies looked unnaturally orange. At the time, investigators were so baffled that the only cause of death that they could identify was, and this is a quote from the actual report from investigators at the time, a compelling natural force, end quote. 
Now, for decades, the mystery has become a fixture of Russian outdoor culture. In fact, in February of 2020, the prestigious American magazine The Atlantic wrote about the incident's lingering grip on Russian society, calling it, quote, Russia's biggest unsolved mystery. They wrote, Aliens, government agents, Arctic dwarfs, and yes, even abominable snowmen have all at various points been blamed for the deaths. One state television show regularly puts self-appointed experts through a theatrical lie detector test to check their outlandish explanations. They were going to camp into a snowy, isolated area. And they set up their tents and they spent their night there. There's a lot of questions why they picked this location to go to. Don't know. But they did. And during the night, something happened. That's David Polites in a YouTube video he posted in the summer of 2020 discussing the Dyatlov Pass incident. Some of them suffered an unbelievable death. Crushed chest, one had their tongue cut out. Uh, some people fled the confines of their tent in the middle of the night in, in just barely anything. As you can probably imagine, it's an incident that he's become extremely interested in, given the weird-seeming connection it has to many of the contemporary cases of missing people in the wild that he's documented. Remember, Pilates has documented hundreds of strange cases of people who go missing in the wild, and the Dyatlov Pass incident has all of the hallmarks of a missing 411 case. In his research, Pilates filters out cases based on what he calls profile points. For example, if there's evidence that the missing person was the victim of animal predation, that case doesn't meet the standards to be featured in the books, which honestly focus more on kind of unexplained cases. Profile points that Pilates uses includes things like subjects being found in odd locations, subjects found dead but there being no identifiable cause of death, subjects missing articles of clothing, missing footwear is especially common, the sudden onslaught of ominous weather, many of the subjects being young, healthy males, Pilates even suggests that there's a disproportionate number of disappearances or deaths that happen near a natural landmark that's named Devil or Diablo. Okay, real quick, it's probably worth noting that there isn't a Devil's Peak or a Lake Diablo nearby, but there is a 2013 found footage horror movie loosely based on the event called Devil's Pass. Here's a clip. 53 years ago, nine people set up camp in the Ural Mountains in Russia. It had become known as the Dyatlov Pass incident. Are you scared? No. We're recreating a trip in which nine people died. Yeah, what, like 50 years ago? Time to go. It's a test, you know? Man against the elements. Guys, say hi from Imdel! Come look at this! What is it? The GPS is all screwed up. We should just leave. By the time we get packed up and get moving, we're going to be hiking in the dark. Look, it's not a great movie, but there are enough odd details of the real-life event that it's drawn Pilates' attention. Many, many years ago, I wrote a book by Donnie Icar, and it was called Dead Mountain. And I communicated with Donnie about it because we recognize the similarities between what happened there and what's happened in some of the stories I've written. Now, I've never written a story where somebody got their tongue cut out or anything strange like that, but... The remote wilderness part of it, uh, the idea that uh, unexplained deaths. Now, Russia has always been a country that really hasn't been transparent in the investigations and their research into many unusual things. And this, there's no difference here. Now, Donnie went to Russia and he talked to some of those people. He read their records. That's why I trust the research he did. I don't trust many others uh, about this Dyatlov Pass. 
But one of the unusual parts of it is that they talked about some of the people that fled the tent that were found below trees and pieces of the branches were on the ground next to them. Now some of the people said, oh, well, uh, they climbed the tree for some reason and they fell. Well, there's another side to that. Who's saying that they climbed the tree? How do we know that they weren't dropped from somewhere and they fell through the tree? Polites never explicitly explains what might have, quote, dropped the hikers from the tree, but the implications here seem pretty clear. Polites seems to believe that a powerful, sinister force was at work. Dyatlov has become a topic of fascination in some internet circles, with armchair digital detectives launching their own amateur investigations from their laptops. Some have pointed to what's become known as Frame 34. It's the final frame in one of the rolls of film on a camera found at the scene. However, most investigators think it was just some sort of technical malfunction. But with all of the other oddities of the circumstances surrounding the deaths, the frame, and the theories about some sort of light in the sky have taken on a life of their own. But I mean, honestly, when you hear about circumstances of people disappearing on cold, remote mountains, who can blame people for being curious about what actually happened there? One of the first uh, rescues I was on as a trainee was a guy named Halpern. And he was uh, in the whites, and he had been hiking. That's the voice of Wayne Saunders, a retired game warden who spent decades in the forest of New Hampshire's White Mountains, which he refers to as the whites. Wayne hosts a fantastic podcast called Warden's Watch, and he's been heavily featured on Animal Planet's reality series Northwoods Law, which follows real-life game wardens. When he and I spoke, he described one of the first encounters he had while assisting in a search and rescue mission in the freezing mountains of America's Northeast. While looking for the missing hiker, he and another officer came across a trail of pieces of clothing haphazardly thrown onto the ground. As we tracked him, you know, we're picking up clothing along the way. And uh, when, when they found him, he was sitting in a brook down to his underwear, I believe, sitting in the brook, uh, frozen solid. Uh, it was <laughs> the strangest thing. He describes putting the body onto a stretcher-like basket known as the litter. And as a trainee, I actually had to put him in the litter. So, I, you know, I've, I was one of the ones that helped get him out of the brook. And then we had to actually strap him in a litter to take him out. And he was, he was frozen solid. It's a chilling story. The kind that wouldn't be out of place in a missing 411 book. In fact, it meets several of Pilates' primary profile points. The death happened in close proximity to water. The victim was missing clothes. The man was otherwise healthy before walking into the woods on a freezing afternoon, taking off his clothes and sitting in an ice-cold river until he froze to death. But what if we can use the mysterious details of the case to actually provide the answers to what really happened that afternoon? I guess, first of all, nothing surprises me anymore. After being in search and rescue so long, it's like everything, you know, you, you literally see everything. That's Dr. Robert Kester. He's a legendary figure in the search and rescue world. Along with holding a master's degree in neurobiology, previously serving as the president of the Virginia Search and Rescue Council, and participating in hundreds of searches himself, he also literally wrote the book on lost person behavior. I mean, literally, it's called Lost Person Behavior. His background in both neurobiology and search and rescue give him a unique perspective. His experience in the woods helped him understand what lost people tend to do, and his education into brain function helped him understand why they behave the way that they do. And what he found is that many lost people act remarkably similar despite the conditions, a fact that could help account for Polite's quote, profile points. According to Kester, there's actually a logical reason for many of these behaviors. 
everybody likes to think, you know, their country, their area, their state it is like unique and different. But when people are lost and they're stressed, uh, the behaviors are actually fairly similar. For him, seemingly strange behaviors actually have rational explanations. Take the idea of what search and rescue professionals know about the concept of, quote, paradoxical undressing. In the late stages of hypothermia, some people experience a physiological phenomenon in which they feel extremely overheated, even though in reality, they're actually freezing to death. We have certainly seen paradoxical undressing uh, in our, our, our searches. Unfortunately, that's a late stage uh, behavior with, with hypothermia. And very few people will be, be found alive if, if they have actually reached uh, that, that stage. In fact, when you start to read more about the work of people like Dr. Kester, things start to seem less mysterious and just more tragic. Oftentimes, when people find themselves in extreme circumstances, they tend to make bad decisions. Usually what I find is if you look at that person's situation, it's, it's not necessarily a, a bad decision when looked in a very tiny context. I mean, I, I see with that with the dementia, of, well, why did they walk into the lake? Which is obviously, on the face of it, a pretty bad decision. Um, one that's usually not survived. But if you think from their perspective that maybe that's not a lake, but a flat place to walk with no obstacles, or if you consider they don't consider the fact they could just turn around, and if your only option is to go someplace you actually see, so if your, your options are limited to this, then maybe it wasn't such a, quote, bad decision in that context. Kester is pragmatic. He wasn't interested in talking about fringy theories or commenting on the work of David Pilates, though, like pretty much everyone else I've talked to for this podcast, he did know Pilates' work. Instead, Kester adheres to Occam's razor, a logical principle that suggests that a problem's most simple solution is likely the correct one. To hear Coaster explain it, many of Pilates' more strange profile points can be relatively easily explained. People are found undressed because that's often what very cold people do. People are found in areas that have already been searched because they wandered back into the search area. People are found near water because that's a logical place for a lost person to try to orient themselves. I mean, look, take the case of the Outloft Pass. If you apply Occam's razor to the circumstances, they still sound very odd, but probably not actually paranormal. In 2019, the Russian government actually reopened the investigation into the dead hikers, and they determined that they died fleeing a very explainable circumstance, an avalanche. An avalanche would explain why they left their tent so rapidly. The hypothermia accounts for the paradoxical undressing. The broken branches high in the tree were probably the result of them looking for higher ground. The radiation could have been the result of chemicals in one of the lamps. The missing eyes and tongue, they could have been the result of scavengers preying on soft tissues. Yes, the avalanche theory has critics, mainly because there wasn't any evidence of an actual avalanche. But it might also be because because if there was a logical explanation, like let's say an avalanche, it would force people to let go of some of the ideas that their death was the result of some powerful conspiracy or some kind of monster. Sometimes the most simple explanations offer the best answers, even though some people like asking big questions. But just because many experts openly dispute claims of paranormal happenings, it doesn't mean that the truth is any less scary. People like Wayne Saunders will be the first to tell you that. 
He's seen a lot of weird stuff in the woods. He is, after all, a law enforcement officer. I think people gravitate to the wilderness to hide their crimes or sometimes commit their crime because of the remoteness of it. Uh, sometimes you're the only person out there with maybe a victim or you're trying to hide evidence. So game wardens, I, I think you'll, you'd be surprised how many interactions with these types of things we have nationwide. Uh, drugs, when they, when they go to the, they, you know, they cook and they make uh, their meth and stuff, they, they go to the woods to do it. Uh, when they go to hide a body, where do you go? You go to the national forest, you find a, you know, you dig a hole in the national forest and you, you bury a victim there. So when the game warden runs into you or the park ranger or the, the law enforcement for the forest ranger, and there are few and far between of those people, but they do, we do have those encounters. And I think that is in the back of our heads most of the time that, you know, 90, 90% of the people that we encounter are good people. But every now and then that sixth sense comes out and you're like, there's something just odd about this. And uh, I think we all have it and some of them are tuned and then others to that sixth sense. But uh, I always tell the guys, you know, if, if you hear that something telling you that there's something wrong, believe it. Just believe it. Just, just go with it. Wayne's had plenty of strange encounters. Even if those encounters don't involve the paranormal, the woods can be a very good place to do very bad things. I always say we're the police in the woods. We come across a lot of that. We work with uh, local authorities on that. Uh, state police use us, us as an asset when it comes to the woods. And I think nationwide, we, we are an asset in the woods. And we, we come across a lot of different things. Some, uh, some unexplained, some explained. And as uh, police officers, I think we always try to explain them because we're rational people. But you just never know. I'll never say never because it'll prove me wrong. And I don't ever want to be that guy that says, like you said, keep an open mind to it. He's open-minded because he's seen some pretty out there stuff, like possible international espionage. No, seriously. I still have something for you, Jesse, though. I want to, I want to get the case, actually, that I, I got a chance to look at uh, from the Russian consulate. Uh, I, had a, I had a friend of a friend who's, who was an attorney in Rhode Island that actually worked with the Russian consulate and was working with a family of a lost uh, a lost young man who went to college here in Vermont. I wish I could pull the name out of my head, and I should have pulled up the file or tried to find out. But uh, he's been missing, and I, I don't believe he's ever been found. But they actually had me grab the case and, and review the case to, 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 so I could like talk to the, the attorney that was representing the family out of Russia, which was pretty interesting. And after I reviewed it, uh, a kid was wicked smart. I think he was at MIT or somewhere in Boston, pretty much, and had gone up and, and just disappeared out of nowhere. And I just reviewed it, and I, 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 I sent it back to the attorney. I said, yeah, you might want to ask the FBI if, you know, I mean, because it just doesn't seem here is, it just seemed too good. Like, maybe he was now a U.S. citizen under a different name or something that just, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, again, one of those suspicious things. I'm like, this just seems too perfect. They, they did quite a search weeks, uh, cadaver dogs in the summer and just did all kinds of, you know, really looked for this kid, but he was a really smart mathematician type. And I said, I, 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 I my gut feeling is, uh, he's now a U.S. citizen and has a different name and lives in Topeka, Kansas is, is my, my feeling on that. But that that's just after reviewing all the facts and everything that the search and rescuers did and, 
yeah and that was maybe because it was russia and a really smart kid and that type of thing i just that must part the police officer in me says uh this just smells so um that was my put back to it look wayne's story doesn't have anything to do with ufos or bigfoot creatures but look the u.s government faking the disappearance of someone who is potentially an intelligence asset that just seems crazy but it also doesn't seem like it couldn't be true Wayne, like a lot of people in the search and rescue field, is rational, but he also knows that the woods can be a weird place. The problem for him is when people take an already weird circumstance, like let's say sightings of a large mountain lion or panther in the mountains of New England, and conflate strangeness with conspiracies. Which, by the way, Saunders told me an interesting story about a wild cougar being found in the mountains of Connecticut. It apparently walked there from North Dakota. But look, stuff like that happens. The woods are a weird place, but that doesn't mean conspiracies are happening. I've heard stories about cougars like these black SUVs pull up and, you know, fishing game guys get out and they throw it in the back and off the cougar goes. And I'm like, I, I, I work for fishing game. I know we don't have any black SUVs that do that. You know, I just, I know we don't. We would if we if we found a cougar, we would do exactly what Connecticut did. We would collect it. We would do DNA, DNA evidence. We'd look at it to make sure it wasn't a domestic animal. And we would try to figure out where it came from and how it got here. Uh, we wouldn't scoop it up and, and hide it, hide the fact that we have. No, we wouldn't hide it. We would uh, start looking at it and trying to maintain a healthy population would be our goal. People have a tendency to take odd happenings, like let's say a rare cougar sighting, and turn them into something sinister. Between them, Wayne and Dr. Kester have spent decades in the wild and have taken part in hundreds of searches. Yes, some of the cases are unsettling and unnerving. But they're both rational people, and they bristle at conspiracy theories, not because they're offended by them, but because the truth, sometimes, is often strange enough on its own. Personally, I think they're both right. I think that in most cases, there are explanations that make sense. I think it's human nature to project our own curiosities and biases onto circumstances when, most of the time, the truth, it's actually stranger than fiction. Listen, the details are really disturbing, but I also think they're probably explainable. However, every once in a while, you hear a story that challenges your ideas. You hear a story so baffling that even if you want to apply Occam's razor, it's hard to really know where to start. That's what happened when I heard the story of Aaron Hedges. Hedges was an extremely experienced outdoorsman, and in September of 2014, him and two friends went elk hunting in Montana's crazy mountains, or as locals call them, the crazies. The other thing you should know is that Hedges and his friends were well armed. Hedges had a bow and arrows and a pistol, and both of his friends had rifles. On their way to Campfire Lake, about 20 miles outside of Billings, the first in a strange sequence of events happens. Their pack mule, which they'd brought along to carry supplies, had a mysterious episode. Something spooked him, and he bucked their belongings onto the trail. In all of the commotion, Aaron ended up losing his sleeping bag. But he was so familiar with the area, he would go regularly, that he had actually hidden caches of supplies in the woods the previous year. That includes an extra sleeping bag. His plan was to go to the hunting camp that they previously used nearby and retrieve one of the other sleeping bags while his friends waited for him at the new camp. However, Aaron never returned to his friends. When he didn't return, his friends were able to briefly track him on a GPS, and they noticed something strange. He walked past the fork in the trail that he was supposed to go down. I mean, this is a fork that he'd been down countless times. And now, according to the GPS, he was walking much further away from the camp. Within days, snowfall hit the area, and a search was conducted for Aaron. 
For the next several days, 20 dog teams, almost 60 searchers, seven teams on horseback, the National Guard, and helicopters would all join on the search. Then, two days into the official search, the team found their first clue. They found Aaron's boots. They were placed next to each other, neatly, side by side. Not far from the boots, they found something else. They also found his camelback water bladder and a burned package of his favorite cigarettes. Oddly, the searchers had been to that exact spot days earlier, and they found nothing. But the clues meant that somewhere, a shoeless Aaron Hedges was out there. Two weeks would pass before the search was scaled back. It would be another nine months before investigators would finally find another clue that would provide some hint as to what happened to Aaron. On a summer afternoon in 2015, a rancher took a brief break from doing some fence work when he noticed an orange vest in the distance. He walked over to it, and nearby, he found Aaron's things. He found his bag, his driver's license, his bow, his clothes. He'd apparently been sitting there eating granola and drinking an energy drink at some point. He apparently also had a cell phone with him. I mean, the guy found it in his bag. Also, weirdly, the pile of gear of Aaron's stuff was within eyeshot of the ranch's main house. If he wanted to, Aaron could have literally just walked up to the house. He was 15 miles from where he'd gone missing. And at this point, he was apparently staring at a large house. Why didn't he approach it? And one of the other big questions is, how could he have possibly climbed over fields of rock and hiked through the snow for all of those miles with no shoes on? The next summer, the ranchers made one final grisly discovery. Aaron's skull was found underneath a tree nearby. It's stories like this that defy any kind of explanation. Look, let's assume it's nothing paranormal here. But what would cause someone to behave like this? If we want to apply Occam's razor, what even is the simplest explanation? I recently had another conversation that turned into a deeper discussion of Occam's razor. It was with a professor of anatomy and anthropology from Idaho State University named Jeffrey Meldrum. Dr. Meldrum specializes in vertebrate evolutionary morphology, specifically the emergence of modern human bipedalism. I sometimes have this conversation with, with folks about the way science, uh, you know, what makes science distinctive. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, uh, that, you know, people often point to is, is parsimony and Occam's razor, you know, the simplest yeah. explanation is, and unfortunately, and it's a pet peeve of mine that that frequently gets abused or misstated. It, uh, it's mm. often paraphrased as the simplest explanation is most likely the correct one. That's not what Occam said at all. He said one should not, being a philosopher of science, he said one should not unnecessarily multiply factors mm. because it, in, a, in a strictly philosophical approach to science, we proceed by falsification. That is, you can't prove all positives but if you can come up with one negative that contradicts your hypothesis, you know, that solidly contradicts it, then you have to go back and modify yeah. your hypothesis. And his argument was, in order to, to follow that program rationally and systematically, it makes sense to start first with the simplest explanation. Yeah. If that suffices, then you have no justification to make elaborations. And so that's what I, what I try to you know, tell people. For me, from my perspective at least, the, from a scientific perspective, a biological scientific perspective, the simplest explanation is that there is a unrecognized species of primate, which happens to stand bipedally up, walk upright. Not that unusual, given our, yeah. our understanding of the burgeoning uh, bushiness of the fossil record of hominins. 
And so until you can show me that that's an insufficient explanation, you're not justified to lead, especially to, you know, to, to other extraordinary explanations, especially when the evidence is extraordinary, yeah. you know, and that's where, you know, I, it's not, it's, you know, I'm, I'm the first to admit those who live in glass houses don't throw stones and, yeah. and I'm not going to criticize someone else um, for entertaining a possibility. Yeah. Uh, history teaches us that's a, that's not a very uh, forward looking uh, attitude. Yeah. And uh, but on the other hand, if you want the science to take you credit uh, seriously, you need to present credible evidence. You need yeah. to have uh, something that is testable, that is can be objectively evaluated. It's important that I preface here that Dr. Meldrum doesn't advocate for supernatural answers to difficult questions. He's a man of science, but he's seen things firsthand that have made him pursue answers that many of his colleagues find difficult to believe. He doesn't connect what he's seen with missing people or abductions. But if we're truly going to lean on Occam's razor here, it's important to hear what he's encountered. Because even if some of the big questions have the simplest solutions, they can still be pretty unbelievable. Remember Laura Krantz from one of our earlier episodes? She's the podcaster behind the really unbelievable show Wild Thing. Seriously, you need to go download that show. It's fantastic. She's also a decorated science journalist and a distant cousin of Grover Krantz a famed anthropologist whose career was often clouded in ridicule for his fascination with an undiscovered primate. Here's the thing. Dr. Meldrum, he knew Grover Krantz personally, and it was an experience he had while hiking with Krantz that set him off on a journey to the edges of Occam's razor. We were taken out and shown this long line of footprints, and it was an exceptional example. I mean, it wasn't just an isolated, ambiguous track that was open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. I mean, these were either or. They were either hoaxed, very cleverly hoaxed, or they were the real deal. There was no middle ground because they were so clear, so distinct, so fresh. I mean, the I, I could kneel down and actually see skin ridge detail evident in some of these prints in this very fine, silty clay soil. And, and so, you know, there was, like I said, there, there was no middle ground and I, yeah. and I put enough, <laughs> I put enough stock in, in my, my craft that I think I can tell the difference between a hoax and the, the subtleties of, of coherent, uh, correlated anatomy of, of a 15 inch footprint that reflects the the very distinctive traits, the greater breadth, the greater midfoot mobility, the, the uh, relative lengths of the toes, the, the uh, you know, pressure points beneath the foot as the step progresses from, from contact to toe off and or push off, let's say. So, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was really one of those aha moments yeah. because there, there was a point where as, as you're sitting there looking at it and the uh, the initial kind of shock of it sort of dispels and you're left with the realization that my gosh a sasquatch actually walked by here last night yeah and uh it was uh you know it at the time it just you know it literally made the hair stand on, on the back of my neck that's next time on hiding something
Hiding Something is a production of the Ironclad Content Network. All episodes are written by me, Jesse Carey. Our editor and post-production producer is Chandler Strang. And hey, listen, if you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating and review an Apple podcast. It really does help more people discover the show. All right, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.